Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Francoise Bayless, a bioethicist and university research professor at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. A philosopher whose innovative research in bioethics lies at the intersection of policy and practice, she challenges readers to think broadly and deeply about the direction of health, science, and biotechnology. She is the author of Altered Inheritance, CRISPR and the Ethics of Human Genome Editing, and a member of the WHO Expert Advisory Committee on Developing Global Standards for Governance and Oversight of Human Genome Editing. Professor, Professor Bayliss is a member of the Order of Canada and the Order of Nova Scotia, as well as a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and a fellow of the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences. In 2017, she was awarded the Canadian Bioethics Society Lifetime Achievement Award. Professor Bayliss is the 2020-2021 Wayne Morse Chair of Law and Politics. She will give a virtual talk, Designer Babies, All You Ever Wanted to Know and More, on February 10th, 2021. Thanks, Francoise, for joining us on the show today. Well, thank you for having me as your guest. So let's start at the beginning. What led to your interest in bioethics? How did you become interested in that? Well true story, and I, I say this for anybody who ever thinks that they might go to university and don't know what they want to do, um, and I was one of those students. I went to university, and in first year, I took one of everything. You know, I took a course in philosophy, a course in political science, a course in Spanish. I even took a course in volleyball, um, and when I went to the class, they were talking about this old guy called Socrates, and I thought, oh, wow, this is really boring. I got to get out of this class. And I mentioned this to a friend of mine and the friend said, oh, you should take it in French. So I was at a bilingual university where you could take your courses in French or in English. And she told me the French course was really excellent and I shouldn't give up on philosophy. So I signed out of the English course. I signed into the French course and they were talking about the Catholic Church, the Vatican Council, and whether or not it was morally wrong for men to masturbate in the context of in vitro fertilization and assisted reproduction. And I thought, well, if this is philosophy, I can do this. Um, and so for me, it was, it was really interesting at two levels. One, I understood for the first time that I could question things. I was being invited to think all by myself about about something that otherwise would have been said to be authoritative and right. And it was like this invitation to think. Um, and beyond that, it really was in the area of reproduction, which I hadn't thought about much at all, I have to say. And that really was the beginning of everything that I've done since then. So think about you know, where I am today. And I had no idea what I was doing as a first year student. Well, that's also a, a wonderful um plug for liberal arts education. I'm always happy to hear that. <laughs> Thank you. So um, let's get- I have since learned a lot about Socrates, I want to say. Yes, I'm sure you have. <laughs> so let's get into some of the more um, details of your work. First of all, what is CRISPR? Why don't you tell us what CRISPR is? Well, it's actually an acronym for something called Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short palindromic repeats. Well, that's a mouthful. And so nobody uses that. 
Um, and I think the important thing to understand is it's short form for a technology that lots of people are excited about. And what does this technology do? Well, it allows scientists, in effect, to go and make changes to our genetic code, to look at, and to, at the DNA and to actually send in targeted responses, if you will. So they'll make guide RNA. Um, and what it does is it goes in, it finds a very precise location on the DNA, and it makes what's called a double-stranded cut. So for those of you who remember your basic biology, DNA has two strands. So it cuts both of those strands, and then it can either replace DNA, it can take out DNA, it can just disrupt the DNA, so think about it as either an addition or a deletion of genetic material that's taking place with the goal of changing the genetic structure of the organism. And I say organism because it could be humans like us, but it could be plants, it could be animals, it could be chemicals. And so the short and important thing to understand is it's really taking control of genetic information because you have the ability to edit that information. And that's the language that's being used currently. Before we would have talked about something like genetic engineering or you know other types of terms, but they're all metaphors. And now we use editing because it helps people to understand, though it is in some respects overly simplified, but it does help people to understand it's like what you might do in front of the computer when you cut and paste. So you can take out letters, put in letters, etc. The reason it's not quite accurate is you can make a lot of mistakes with genome editing, not the way we think of the cut and paste function uh, with your word processor. So let's go back. You said a lot of people are enthusiastic about CRISPR. Why? Why is this something that's inspiring scientists and others to be eager for it? Well, I think people imagine that this is going to be helpful, for example, in terms of uh, food production uh, and increasing uh, crops. Uh, and people imagine that it will also be helpful, for example, in ways that you could manufacture certain kinds of chemicals that we need and use. But I think what has captured the moral imagination is the possibility of curing diseases amongst humans. And that's what I think you've seen a lot of enthusiasm around how might CRISPR uh, become integrated in modern medicine in terms of being able to offer some kind of gene therapies. So you mentioned that it's a lot easier to err when you're doing gene editing than it is when you're editing your paper on your computer. Say a little bit about the implications of that in terms of this enthusiasm. Well, I think it's really important that when we talk about all the wonderful things we're going to do, that we understand that that's in the future and the path uh, is complicated. And so one of the things we talk about are something called off-target effects. And so I made the comment that you're trying to get a piece of DNA, for example, into a cell to replace what you've identified as faulty DNA, well, if it goes to the wrong place, uh, we would think of that as an off-target effect. So if you were to insert genetic material in a place where it shouldn't be, we don't know what the consequences might be. And I'll obviously be specific to whatever information got put into the cell. Another thing you could have, though, are on-target effects. So you actually got to where you wanted to go, but you actually had an unintended consequence. 
uh, a different kind of mistake, but again, could have very devastating uh, implications for the being or the organism. We also have potentially a problem that is called mosaicism, and that's when you make changes, but you have a selection of cells, some of which are altered, some of which are not. Um, there are also concerns about causing cancer. So I think that kind of gives you a, a broad kind of picture that things can go wrong. You know, it's with a lot of enthusiasm, we go, we say, we'll go in, we'll be very precise, we'll make this cut, we'll add the right DNA, everything will be fine. Um, but lots can go wrong along the way. So you've just spoken about the sort of technical uh, things that can go wrong. I'm also interested, and obviously you are interested in the ethical things that can go wrong. So tell us about some of those. I'm particularly interested in questions of social equity around CRISPR technology. And I think that's really one of the big concerns. And that's a concern um, in at least two broad domains. So when we talk about doing genome editing, we can be thinking about doing that for patients who are alive amongst us. And what we would be doing there is something that we call somatic genome editing. And somatic just refers to all of your body cells except your reproductive cells. So your skin cell, your hair cells, your brain cells, your liver cells, et cetera. And the idea there is that you'd be able to offer treatments to people who have a genetically based health challenge. The concern is that this technology will be very expensive. The concern is that it will target um, people who are wealthy in highly industrialized, high-income countries, and that patients who are just as needy and as deserving may never, in fact, have access. And a classic example there would be something like sickle cell disease, uh, which affects a particular segment, for example, of the um, population in the United States, but really, which is a huge problem for Africa. We already know that we can't even get basic medicines to Africa. And if we think about the current context around COVID and the pandemic and vaccination, you're already seeing huge disparities. So there is a concern here about how much of this will be invested in for the benefit of a very few. And I think the reason we worry about that is because this will be a huge investment in terms of science. And a lot of that basic science will be done with tax dollars. So everybody in some way, shape or form will have contributed to knowledge development, but may not reap the benefits, whatever they turn out to be. So that's one sort of arena in which people have very real concerns uh, about equity. So the other arena in which we can make changes is with what we refer to as the gametes, that's your egg, your sperm, the precursor cells, the cells that make the gametes, and also the early human embryo. And in that context, if you make changes to those cells, not the somatic cells, not the body cells, you're looking at making what we call heritable changes. In that context as well, there's a concern about equity because the belief is that ultimately it won't be the 99% that gets access to that technology. It will be the 1%. And so what will happen in effect is that they will add to all of the privileges they already have, be they political, socioeconomic, et cetera, you will now add a very specific kind of biological privilege and you will put that privilege in effect into your DNA. And so that's one of the things that people worry about, at least the people who believe that this technology ultimately will go in that direction. But it's because of those kinds of concerns that you're having huge debate about what should or shouldn't happen. And in some cases, it's actually to try to say, maybe this is a path we shouldn't take because of some of those kinds of issues that I've just described. 
So um, who currently who decides who gets the benefits of CRISPR technology and, and gene editing? Who, who, where do those decisions get made? The way in which we currently do science. So much ultimately is a function of the imagination of the scientist who then puts together some kind of an idea, research proposal, et cetera, goes looking for funding either in the private sector or the public sector, and then kind of pursues their passion. Now, there's lots of ways in which that's terribly positive, um, and it's certainly, you know, something that people champion in terms of the value of basic science. People talk about serendipity, how you can't know what the benefits are going to be, and that we shouldn't constrain that kind of creativity. The problem with that, however, is that there are social priorities, and there is social money, as I said before, in taxes being invested. And so I think that there's actually a role for many other people to be involved. Now, at some level, governments are involved because ultimately they decide to invest money in this particular idea or not. Philanthropists might be involved because they choose to invest money in this idea or not. But I and others have been arguing that when it comes to this question, whether or not we should be modifying the genomes of organisms and especially of humans, that we really need to think more broadly about dispersing that responsibility. And I've said, partly as a metaphor as well, to say the human genome belongs to all of us. And in that context, we ought all to have some kind of a say. And so I've been advocating for global conversations. And a large part of my work is trying to make the ideas accessible to the general public such that they can feed into that conversation. So I guess the long and short of it is, I really believe that the questions we're facing right now are too important to leave to scientists alone. So when you're, you're talking about enhancements, I'm interested in the case of um, disabilities such as dwarfism or deafness or blindness. And this, this particular case seems especially ethically um, naughty to me. Would you say a little bit about your views on those kinds of addressing those kinds of genetic situations? Well, I think one of the things to be really clear about is that those are very good examples of what some people are worried about in terms of losing sight of the difference between a different way of being in the world and a disability. And the different ways of being in the world are, I think, efforts on the part of people who see themselves as parts of communities to say, the problem is not internal to me, the problem is within society and what society either accepts or makes possible or invests resources in. And I think in that context, it behooves us to really listen carefully to what we are being told and what we should be hearing. And I think most active um, in this debate, specifically about genome editing, has been the deaf community. And they have said quite clearly, um, we have a very rich life and we have a language that you can't speak and that's our problem. Um, it becomes our problem when you don't make the effort to make information available or accessible in ways that we can also share in the benefits of what is communally available. And I think that that's a very good example of saying, you know, are those with or without hearing we know what the majority is in terms of numbers, but do we know that there's only one legitimate way of being in the world? And I think that's what the deaf community is saying. Now, 
I've said the deaf community as though there's no disagreement or difference in perspective. Clearly there are differences in perspective, but I think what you're seeing coming to the fore is an effort to say, you need to be really careful about what you label as a disability and what decisions you make on behalf of those that you have labeled as disabled. Um, and I think in that context, many people are wanting to be part of the conversation. It seems to me that that has implications uh, well beyond um, what we might call, speak of as disabilities. I mean, I'm thinking I'm not a tall person and I could imagine one of these enhancements is, oh, I have two short parents. I'm a short person. I don't want my children to be short. I want to enhance them so that they become tall and their, their progeny are tall. But this value on tallness is a culturally relative one, it's historically contingent, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems as if that opens a, a huge question about anything we might say is a desirable trait as being something that is culturally relative, not at all grounded in objectivity at all. And that seems to suggest that these problems that you've just emphasized in relation to disabilities are, are much broader around almost any kind of enhancement you might want to make. Well, I think that's very true, because what happens is if you have this notion of the ideal human, whatever that turns out to be, and we have to recognize, as you've alluded to, that it will be culturally specific, it will be time specific, it will be, you know, constrained in so many different ways. But once we set that up, then in effect, most of us are going to be disabled by virtue of whatever this image of perfection is. And it won't just be with respect to height, it will be eye color, hair color, skin color, and we can go on, right? Um, and so I think that that's a really important point to raise. And I think it allows me to say very clearly because of the example you've given, that there's something deeply worrying when we actually know we have a social problem and we think the answer is biology. That's not the answer. Um, I think what we really need to be able to do is to name those challenges and to ask questions and to try to, you know, create a different kind of world, but not through biology. Um, you know, you made a reference to height. Um, it is, in fact, true that there is data to suggest that males who are shorter in an interview situation will do less well. But that has nothing to do with their abilities vis-a-vis -vis the job. And so what we need to do is to change people's assumptions, which clearly are flawed. We need to address issues of bias. We need to address all of the isms um, you know, that are problematic, whether it's ageism, racism, et cetera, sexism. And those are not things that we change through biology. So you have um, made a very cogent argument for a point that you didn't you didn't phrase it in this way, but you've just argued for the benefit of intersections between the humanities and the sciences. Can I give you an opportunity to speak a little more broadly on, on the importance of bringing those disciplines, those fields together? Well, I think the reason it is so important to think in those terms is that if we don't, we are unwittingly making several important mistakes. One of them uh, is around what we call the fact value distinction, where we start thinking that science is about truth and facts and somehow is disconnected to the world and warrants our deference. 
without understanding that science is in fact deeply imbued with values and th those values come from the humanities, right? And so we actually, in a, a really important way, need to understand that they already <laughs> intersect. It's just not in ways that are always obvious and that different people sometimes have an interest, if you will, in obscuring that. Because you, if you want deference, you don't want to actually say there are subjective components to this. Uh, but it's very clear. I mean, if you say that we will consider this science, for example, successful, ready to take to the clinic, what did that mean? It works 100% of the time? Unlikely. It worked 80% of the time? Well, is that good enough? Well, 50% of the time. I mean, those are all numbers. Those all look robust. But someone had to say what the cutoff was. Someone had to say this is the right percentage. Um, and I think that that's something really important to be aware of and to think about in this context. And I think beyond that, we need to understand there is no more important question right now than, I think, the questions in the humanities about who are we? What's the purpose of life? What does it mean to be a human? Those are the questions we need to answer to even know whether we want to use this technology and if we want to use this technology, to what end, right? It isn't just, oh, this is cool science. Let's just play around and see what happens. You have to have a goal. You have to have an objective. Those goals and objectives are informed by things other than facts out there in the world. They're informed by what we've decided is important. And we have decisions to make about the direction of this science. And so I don't even think it's optional, um, you know, for the two of them to try to live separate lives. Um, they can't. And we need, to, we need to sort of remind people who might think it's otherwise. So this gets me to my next question, which is you are an advocate for slow science. Would you tell us what slow science is? And you, I mean, you've already begun to uh, get us to this point, but could you speak a little more explicitly about the benefits of slow science? Well, one of the things I worry about deeply is the way in which many realms of society have become corporatized and privatized. And I would also say that that's true in science and the humanities, which, you know, not everybody would necessarily agree with, but I think we need to be aware of that. So one of the things that happens then is knowledge production takes on a different kind of weight because it's now in the service of the economy right, in a very particular kind of way. And I think that's what I'm trying to call into question, because otherwise you have incentives to generate fast facts to do what? Um, and I don't think we need a lot more fast facts. I think what we need is time to ask big questions. Um, and that means, you know, time to reflect. Uh, and, you know, as a result of reflection, maybe you won't do the experiment that you would have done if you just had to do it quickly because you had to get another grant, you had to get a patent, you had to get a publication, you had to get all of these measures, these beans that somebody, some bean counter is interested in. And what I'm wanting is to say, can we pull back from those kinds of metrics? Can we think big picture? What's the purpose? What's the goal? And in this case, I'm really asking the question, what kind of world do we want to live in? I think that's the biggest question of all. And I think all of the sciences play into that. I think all of our lived life plays into that. What's going on with this pandemic is all about that one question. And we are not looking that question in the face and really paying attention to what we are being asked to consider. We're kind of too easily just chasing the next thing that we're told is important. As I said, in science, whether it's the publication, the cover of a magazine, a patent, 
a, a new company that you're starting. Those aren't the important things unless they're on a path to something bigger. And we don't have a lot of agreement on what that path is. So you've just alluded to the coronavirus pandemic and, um, you know, obviously this is probably one of the fastest scientific innovations in, in, in my lifetime. Um, and obviously the goal here is to defeat or to mitigate the, the, the virus. I know uh, in your most recent work, you've been applying your uh, insights as a bioethicist to questions around the COVID pandemic. Would you tell us a little bit about some of the ethical concerns you've been exploring? Related to the sure, pandemic. I'd be happy to do that. And I, and I think one of the things to appreciate here in the transition from what I'm describing as slow science and what looks like fast science and really good fast science in the benefit of, of humankind, it is a little bit of what I argue for in slow science in that I'm arguing against sort of the competitive structures that we've put in place and more for something along the lines of collaborative ambition. So what's interesting to me is the juxtaposition of some of what I'm talking about in the context of slow science, moving away from the corporate and the privatization, but we're seeing that rear its ugly head now that we've actually made a certain amount of progress. It's right back up there, um, and we need to ask questions about that. But I think for me, what's really key here is, and I've said this to a couple of friends, if I were to write my book, Altered Inheritance, again, I would say exactly the same thing. It's just the case study would be different. It would now be covid because what I'm arguing for in the book is really big picture and genome editing is just the example. What I'm arguing for is what kind of world do we want to live in? And when I ask that question about the pandemic, I'm really struck by the fact that there's so much discussion about, can we get back to normal? Can we get back to you know what was once the good life? And I wanna say, wait a sec, wait a second. It wasn't such a good life, right? We have an opportunity, in fact, to do something really different. It's not about going backwards. And this pandemic has, you know, for those of us who want to see, shone a light on some really important um, disparities, injustices. So if I were to ask you the question, what kind of world do you want to live in? And you said back to me, well, I want to live in a just, fair, equitable world. I know at one hand, you can sort of, on one hand, you could say, well, that's mom and apple pie. Everybody wants that. It's like, well, let's make it concrete. What does it mean? I would say to you, it doesn't mean the way in which we've been handling the pandemic thus far. Um, and so all the work that's being done to develop vaccines, all the work that's being done to think about ways of reopening the economy, if you're thinking about them narrowly and in a way that's continuing to be self-interested and worried about what can or cannot be monetized, et cetera, we will actually fail this test, um, if you will, as a society, as a species. And ultimately, it will be part of our demise because there will be other pandemics. And if we continue to do this and to behave in the way we're behaving now, we're just going to speed up the end of this species. And, you know, if you believe in Darwin, maybe that's okay, right? We're supposed to come to an end and this will be it. And it won't just be about biology, will it? It will be about social choices we have made in response to biological challenges. So I know that one of the uh, issues around COVID that you have, have spoken about are these immunity passports and vaccine certificates and health passes. Say a little bit about those things and, and your views on them. Well, many people who are you know, feeling quite 
constrained by the pandemic and aren't able to go outside or go to work in the regular way and also travel are really excited about the idea that we would get some kind of a pass. Now, in the early days, people were talking about um, immunity passports. That's something I've written about and uh, it's something I'm firmly against for a number of scientific, practical, ethical reasons. But what I want you to appreciate is I don't have the same perspective with respect to vaccine certificates. So let me explain the difference so that people could understand why. When people first started championing this idea of immunity passports, what they imagined was people who had been exposed to the virus, survived, could then go out into the world confident that they wouldn't get infected again and that they wouldn't infect others. Well, there were a whole bunch of questions about the science there, but also it's kind of a perverse incentive to go out and get infected and doesn't at all fit with any of the goals of public health. And so it just seemed like a really crazy idea. And you could layer on top of that all sorts of other things. Vaccine certificates are different insofar as they're actually a part of or consistent with the goals of public health because you would be encouraging vaccination you would also have real data. This person received this dose of this vaccine on this day, and we know this much about how the vaccine or does, does or doesn't work. And so you've actually got some sound, robust information. And most importantly with vaccine certificates, they're not novel. We have actually had them before and in fact have them in place now. I have a yellow card because if I needed to go into countries where there was an issue around yellow fever, I needed to be able to show that kind of vaccination. So in principle, I don't have a problem with that. I do have ethical worries, which have to do with things like, again, accessibility, equity, privacy. I've talked about this in the context of immunity um, passports and vaccine certificates would carry over this particular problem, which is that again, you're looking at a situation where the privileged are likely to uh, have expedited benefits, if not long-term benefits in terms of who can access a vaccine, who has a smartphone to display the digital passport and other kinds of pragmatic constraints. The interesting thing is we don't have enough vaccine to go around. So any of these ideas at some level are kind of moot. And yet the people who really want to jumpstart the economy, get tourism up and running again, are looking for these kinds of mechanisms. I think in the near term, we are going to see some version of a vaccine certificate. I think when we do go down that path, we need to talk a whole lot more, not just about who will benefit. We actually know what the benefits are of getting that kind of documentation available. We need to look at who is going to be hurt by those policies. And there will be several people. Um, there will be people who are immunocompromised and cannot be vaccinated. There will pe be people who are under the age of 16 where we don't have any data to say they should be vaccinated. We have pregnant women where again, we don't have any data to say they should be vaccinated. We have people who in the early days of the pandemic got sick and are now long haulers and we don't know what we can do with them. So there's lots of people who for all kinds of reasons are not going to be able to access the vaccine. In terms of productivity, meaning literally, sorry, I should say more production, producing the vaccine, there isn't gonna be enough for a very long time, years, etc. So you can't put in place those kinds of measures which disenfranchise huge swaths of the population. So I think in the short term we're going to probably have something like vaccine certification coupled with something like a health pass which will, will rely on testing. And that won't say that you have or haven't had a vaccine, you are or are not immune. What it will say is 
at this moment in time when you took this test, you did not have COVID-19. But the thing I want to underline and remind everybody about is we don't actually know even now what the vaccines will do in terms of transmissibility. So we know it'll have an impact on illness and how that's experienced. But the whole reason for wanting this kind of certification is to make sure that you're not bringing the virus into um, another location. And so there's going to be a whole lot of science still that needs to be figured out. But layered on top of that, which gets back to your point about the link between science and humanities, we have to make choices about how to use that science. And we've got to be really cognizant of not only who will benefit, but who will be harmed. So we're coming to the end of our time, and I think this will be my last question, uh, shifting gears again. So tell us about some of the activities you'll be participating in while serving as the Wayne Morse Chair. Well, I have a busy schedule, I can tell you that. Um, as was mentioned at the beginning, I will have a lecture on Wednesday that is open to the public. It's a virtual lecture where I'll be talking about designer babies. I'll try to explain that concept. I'll talk a little bit about the science, but really want to try to unpack for people the things I would like them to take into consideration when thinking about the world that we're building together. Um, and part of that, the goal for that talk will be to get people to see we're at a fork in the road and what do I mean? So that's the little teaser, come and let's hear what I mean by this fork in the road. Uh, beyond that, I'll be giving uh, participating in a number of uh, panel discussions. Uh, also, I will be um, engaging with Sheila Jasanoff and her new book that's out this year, which is great. And honestly, what's one of the things that's just wonderful for me is I get the opportunity to drop into a number of classrooms um, with students. And that's always lovely because they ask such good questions. Um, and I say that with, with prescient knowledge, having had that pleasure last week. Um, so it's really, really wonderful, uh, a variety of things. And I'm really very pleased and honored to have been offered this opportunity. Well, thank you, Francoise, for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you so much for agreeing to be the this year's uh, Morse Chair. Uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you, appreciate it. I've been speaking with bioethicist Francoise Bayless, a university research professor at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and author of Altered Inheritance, CRISPR and the Ethics of Human Genome Editing. Bayless is the 2020-2021 Wayne Morse Chair for Law and Politics. She will give a virtual talk, Designer Babies, All You Ever Want to Know and More on February 10th, 2021. Thanks so much for watching.